everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and as always, I'm joined in the studio with my producer and brother, Joel. What up, man? We are back for another absolutely crazy, insane story. I mean, this episode is going to be all over the place. Today, we're talking about Pazuzu Algarod and the Clemens House of Horrors. Now, if you've never heard of Pazuzu, you are in for a very, very interesting ride because this guy was one of the craziest individuals that I've ever researched before. And his whole story from start to finish is just absolutely insane. We're going to be talking about Satanism. We're going to be talking about murder. We're going to be talking about drugs. We're going to be talking about all sorts of different things that all occur in this small little North Carolina town in the Bible Belt where literally the devil himself resides. But before we get into the story, I just want to remind you all, make sure you subscribe and follow us on Spotify, iTunes, leave us a rating or a review. We really do appreciate getting your guys' feedback. It helps us to make a better show for you guys. All right, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the story of Pazuzu Algarod. Now, I know you're probably thinking, what the hell kind of name is Pazuzu? Who is this guy and why would you ever want to call yourself that? I'll get into why he named himself Pazuzu. Now, he was not born with that name. He was actually born by the name of John Alexander Lawson, but he did not keep that name for very long. So for the sake of confusion, I'm going to be calling John Lawson Pazuzu throughout this entire episode. Now, Pazuzu's parents were Cynthia and Timothy Lawson, and they got married in 1971. And then seven years later, Cynthia gave birth to their only child, John Alexander Lawson a.k.a. Pazuza Isla Algarod. Now, after he was born, the family relocated from San Francisco, California to Forsyth County, North Carolina. That's a big change, first of all. Obviously, that's a huge change in just environment and the people because, I mean, you're moving from San Francisco to the Bible Belt, essentially, so it's going to be a very different life there. And I think partly that move caused a lot of friction between his parents and They just started facing other issues within their marriage, including allegations of abuse. There was a lot of different things going on. So when Pazuzu was only 12 years old, his parents got divorced. And after they got divorced, his father actually moved back to California, where he really ceased to have a real relationship with him after that. And his mother ended up moving to a small town called Clemens, North Carolina, which is a suburb of Winston-Salem. North Carolina. Sometime later, Cynthia got married to Pazuzu's stepfather, Johnny James, in 1998, and the three of them lived together at the Knob Hill House in Clemens, which this was a huge adjustment for them. I mean, coming from the big city in San Francisco to a small town, I mean, there's only 20,000 residents there. It's 12 square miles, and plus, it's known for its mostly conservative evangelical population. So this is a very different lifestyle for them. And the economy of this bedroom community was hit hard over the last few decades. And by the time that Pazuzu was a teenager, there were very few opportunities for young people, as this happens so often in many small towns. So teens and young adults often turn to drinking and drug use. And unfortunately, like so many places in this country, it fell victim to the opioid epidemic. But not much is really known about Pazuzu's childhood. 
there's been a lot of conflicting stories told about his background and his upbringing. And eventually he reinvents himself completely when he becomes Pazuzu Algarad. So Pazuzu's mother had a friend named Carmen Du. And while Pazuzu was around five to nine years old, Carmen would often babysit him uh, when his mother was gone. And she said that Pazuzu was a very well-behaved child. I mean, he wasn't crazy by any means, you know, just a typical young child at the time. But he did really enjoy watching scary movies. Like that was one of his favorite things when Carmen was there was like, can we watch a scary movie? Can we watch a scary movie? And so they always did that a lot together. And she said that he would often dress up as a, f- a vampire wearing like a black cape with fake teeth and would just act like this giant character when she was around. Yeah. And he wasn't just watching like, you know, somewhat scary movies. I mean, he was watching like Freddy Krueger, Jason. Uh, he liked to watch The Exorcist. Yep. I mean, he watched a lot of like really serious horror movies at a very, very young age. And uh, and he really just loved, you know, anything that was spooky, anything horror. He definitely felt like he identified with it, which is interesting. And one of the things to note is that Pazuzu did spend a lot of time with himself and his mother was out working and obviously she was a single mother. So she was having to do what she needed to in order to pay the bill. So, you know, there was a lot of time for Pazuzu to really explore life and explore different things because when he was 13 years old, he began to drink alcohol daily and at only 13 years old started looking into Satanism. And he was one of the things too to mention is he really loved magic. And I mean, a lot of little kids love magic, including me. I love magic as well. So, you know, at this young age, he was already kind of delving into the dark arts and really learning about witchcraft and black magic. And, and so much so that he would tell his classmates at school that he had special abilities, like he could control the weather among other things. So he really prided himself on the idea that, you know, I could be different and, you know, if, because I don't fit in with everybody else, especially in Clemens, North Carolina. I mean, when you grow up in a place that's predominantly conservative and religious, you got to think that going to school is probably somewhat difficult because how many kids are really like into dark shit at that young of an age. And if you are into that and you're telling people you can do magic and, you know, control shit with your mind and whatnot, that's going to probably freak out some of these kids that are, you know, going to church every Sunday. They're going to, because they're being told the opposite, that magic is evil and that you shouldn't delve into any of this stuff and Satan, hell no. So I'm, I'm sure that was, you know, he started sort of feeding off of that negative energy that he was creating because, you know, it made him feel good. It made him feel powerful. And to realize at such a young age that if I do these things and I act this certain way, if I come across as evil and dark, then I'm going to get, you know, not necessarily good attention from it, but I'll get some attention from it. And I think it was really hard that he lost his dad and he didn't have, he was the only child too. I think that's really important to note that he didn't have any brothers and sisters to really like play with and, and be, you know, do things with. So He was alone a lot and he was really just trying to find anything that would bring him happiness and joy. And because it was happened to be dark and spooky that, and unfortunately 
living in this type of environment, it was difficult for him to make friends because he would get into a lot of physical fights with his peers. He would yell obscenities at his teachers. He vandalized property. And, you know, he likes to deny that he did a lot of these behaviors, but it's, it's pretty obvious that this was, you know, things that he was doing from such a young age. And obviously school is going to be tough when you don't have any friends and, you know, you're really not interested in what's happening there, what you're learning about. And Pazuzu actually had to repeat the second and ninth grades, but then he ended up dropping out of school completely before finishing his freshman year of high school. And Pazuzu suffered from extreme anxiety whenever he even left the house. And he claimed that it got so bad that he would frequently feel like he was going to pass out or faint. And he apparently had a major phobia of being around a bunch of people or people in general. And I think that really started uh, contributing to his alcoholism at a very young age. And he often would go through like a 12 pack of beer in one day just to cope with all that anxiety that he was having. That's so wild to think about in high school. Like I couldn't imagine taking down a 12 pack every day and I get why he did it. I mean, he's clearly suffering from mental disorders, mental illness, and it's undiagnosed. He's not getting any help for it. So he's just trying to get through the day. And the only way that he's figured out how to do that is by consuming alcohol, which I mean, let's be real. So many of us, you know, use alcohol in order to rid us of anxiety or just escape reality for a little bit. It's just one of those things. And, you know, to do this at such a young age is going to really affect your development as a human. And it's going to make, make things very difficult for you. And unfortunately with Pazuzu, the darkness inside of him continued to grow and he had a lot of anger built up inside. I mean, he was an emotional kid and he was actually known to torture animals, which sometimes preceded the violence that he did against humans. And despite these issues that he had, his mother, Cynthia, described her son as a, quote, little warrior and believed he could be a good person. Also, when he was 13, Cynthia took Pazuzu in for psychiatric treatment. And according to Carmen, his former babysitter, Cynthia was the cause of her son's violent behavior. Carmen claimed that Pazuzu's mother drank heavily and left her son alone to go out with men, though we don't know for sure if this is true or not, but I definitely believe he was on his own a lot and just started getting wrapped up with the wrong people really, really early on. I mean, how's he getting alcohol? You know, I guess he could be taking his mother's alcohol, which that's probably what happened a lot of the times is he just drank his, if his mom's drinking heavily every day, then chances are he's probably got good access to alcohol, but also, you know, if he's running the streets with whoever, then there's another way to get, you know, alcohol and drugs. But this is also a really good point is that his mother, according to the psychiatric treatment he received, was one of the main issues for all of his mental issues and just the state of his life because his mom kind of lives in this state of denial of what's actually going on because she's in a state of denial in her own life because she's trying to deal with her own problems and she's just really not fit to be taking care of a kid that is also struggling with mental issues. So the two of them together, it's just like, it makes it very difficult to, 
you know, keep each other on the right path. And so, you know, Pazuzu was able to get up to no good. Psychiatrists also diagnosed Pazuzu as a psychotic with schizophrenia, agoraphobia, and manic depression. But his treatment didn't last long because Cynthia soon ran out of money. And without treatment, Pazuzu continued his downward spiral, which is really sad to think about that before things get really bad, I mean, he's dealing with some serious, serious mental illness. I mean, schizophrenia is is just whenever I hear about people that have schizophrenia, that sounds like one of the worst things that could happen to you. I mean, there's just so many different elements to it that really affects everything. You know, your whole reality changes when you have a mental illness like that. And then agoraphobia, which if you don't know what that is, that's an anxiety disorder characterized by symptoms of anxiety in situations where the person perceives their environment to be unsafe with no easy way to escape. These situations can include open spaces, public transit, shopping centers, or simply being outside their home. That's scary. That's really scary. So basically, unless you're home, you feel completely unsafe and can have a a panic attack at any point in time. On top of that, fear of people, like basically he's outside in the world and he's just absolutely terrified of everything. That, That would be a really, really scary place to be. And it's definitely an extreme combination of mental illness to have both of those going on at the same time at that young of an age. And since he felt like the only way he could connect with his peers at school was through his uh, interests of magic and, you know, horror movies and stuff like that, that was just completely not the norm for a Bible belt type of town. So in my mind, I feel like he could have been looked at as an outsider in that sense. And then when he's adding on alcohol to that as well, I I can't imagine what type of mind state he was in most of the time. Yeah. And you gotta, you gotta think that the alcohol is not helping his mental illness as well. I'm sure. I mean, all of those things together is just a recipe for disaster for sure. Because Pazuzu dropped out of school, he wasn't really able to get any serious job. And in his twenties, he worked as a landscaper briefly But then he quickly went on disability for his agoraphobia. And then in 2002, he legally changed his name from John Algarod Lawson to Pazuzu Isla Algarod. In the actual forms he filled out, he said the change was for religious reasons, but didn't name a specific religion. Now, the name Pazuzu isn't random. Pazuzu is a Mesopotamian demonic god known as King of the Demons and Demon of the Underworld. And according to mythology, this God had an instinct to destroy and the ability to control the weather. It's also a part of pop culture. William Peter Blatty introduced Pazuzu to modern audiences through his 1971 novel, The Exorcist, and a feature film was based on the novel was released in 1973. And in the story, a 12-year-old girl named Regan McNeil is possessed by a demon named Pazuzu. And in this novel, The Exorcist, all the paranormal activity and all the things that happened to Roland Doe are attributed to this demon God named Pazuzu. So after he changed his name to Pazuzu legally, he created a whole new identity for himself. He said that his mother was a Satanist and that his father was a high priest. He also claimed he was Muslim and that his family was of Iraqi descent. 
that's what's very, very interesting about him and about this whole story that you really don't see often at all, or it really doesn't make a lot of sense, is that he claims to be both a Satanist and a Muslim. And the two, I mean, I don't really think they jive too well. What's also interesting about the fact that you claimed he was a part of these two religions is that He's a guy that ends up with tattoos all over himself. He's got a huge tattoo on his forearm that says Satan on it. And then at the same time, he'd wear a turban. And it's really interesting because I I wonder like how religious he actually was. And in, in my mind, in many people's minds, believe that he did this specifically in order to get a reaction out of other people. Because if you think about it, what's more terrifying to you know, a, a Bible community, a Christian community, than you know, a Satanist and, you know, one that happened to be wearing a turban because this was also around the same time that nine 11 happened and the terrorist attacks. And so there was all of this fear around, you know, terrorists and Islamic extremists and everything. So to try and make himself look like that, but also a Satanist at the same time was kind of this ultimate, you know, way to have people fear him. And I think that's what he was really going for because there's literally no evidence that Pazuzu ever followed the teachings of Islam or even knew anything about Iraqi or Muslim culture. And yeah, I personally don't think he was a real Muslim by any means, obviously, because any Muslim would never do the things that he did and, you know, definitely would not go along with Satanism or anything like that. So I think it was purely a way for him to scare people in his community because unfortunately in, in some places in the Bible belt, there's a lot of Islamophobia. People are just scared of, you know, a different religion, a different ideal. So I think that's why he did it. But around 2006, Pazuzu was in treatment for substance abuse and mental health problems at Daymark Recovery Services. And during this time, he was on Zoloft, a medication used to treat depression and anxiety disorders. But he quit taking it because it made him feel like a zombie. Interesting that Zoloft is coming back into the mix. You know, we talked about Zoloft with uh, Eric uh, from the Columbine episode. Right. How that may have had an effect on him and this feeling of being like a zombie. So I'm I'm interested if any of you out there have have been on Zoloft or, or you are on Zoloft, what do you ever experience this zombie like state that it seems like many people experience? I'm really curious, but after being in treatment for about a year, he left when he lost his transportation. And in 2008, he went back to Daymark recovery services, seeking treatment for his agoraphobia. He wanted help getting disability and getting his driver's license back after he had gotten a DUI that time around psychiatrist diagnosed Pazuzu with a panic disorder, agoraphobia, social phobia, and alcohol dependence, and they attributed his unusual thoughts and beliefs to his tribal religion rather than psychosis. And for a time, Puzuzu did follow the Church of Satan, but he longed for more violence and chaos than the church offered. So he decided to come up with his own religion that he called the Sumerian religion. And according to him, the Mesopotamian people who believed in the demon god Pazuzu followed elements of this religion. For Pazuzu, this religious practice meant performing a dark moon sacrifice. 
a monthly sacrifice of an animal in the form of a satanic ritual. His mother, Cynthia, knew about this ritual, but believed Pazuzu might attempt suicide if it were taken away from him. He took these rituals very seriously, and I think he did take his religion very seriously because I think at some point when you are in the place that he is, you really do start to believe that you've become this demon that he claims he is Pazuzu. I think he really actually believed that by doing these rituals, by doing these things that it would help give him more power to, and to become literally this demon. Like I think he really thought he would become, you reach this godlike state where he had all of this powers and ability. If he continued doing these uh, sacrifices and things like that. So whenever people question that, especially his mom was like, what do you, you know, why are you killing that rabbit? Like he'd literally go out there and I hate saying this because I have rabbits and it killed me when I heard this, but he would literally slit the rabbit's throat and wipe the blood of the rabbit all over his face and then perform his little ritual on a full moon. And, you know, he claimed that gave him power, but I don't know about that. But as time went on, Pazuzu's behaviors grew more extreme and the Knob Hill house gradually became a sort of asylum for outcasts and a place where they could escape. So a man named Crazy Dave Adams was a friend of Pazuzu for literally over a decade. And he explained when whenever he was over at Pazuzu's house that it was like a free range, judgment-free zone. And it was a place where people could act however they wanted on their darkest impulses and urges. And a lot of them would be under the influence of psychedelics and, or drugs while they were there. And they would drink lots of alcohol as well. And they even participated in giant orgies or, you know, had lots of sex while they were there. Which is just fucking crazy that this is happening in his mom's house. His mom is living in this house where all of this crazy fucking shit is happening. And I think that's one of the most mind blowing things about this entire story is that when all of this crazy shit is going on and going down, it's all happening in Pazuzu mother's house. And as long as they didn't touch her room, she literally didn't care what was happening in it. And things get really fucking ugly. Pazuzu modeled his behavior after infamous men like occultist Aleister Crowley and the founder of the Church of Satan, none other than Anton LaVey, as well as convicted murderer and cult leader Charles Manson. So he kind of took all the worst things from all three of these individuals and he did it even more extreme. Like he just went to the next level, sex, blood, alcohol, drugs, all of those things in one place. And when word got around town that there was this place where you could go and you could literally do drugs, you could do whatever you want. And you know, there was no rules. All sorts of people started turning up and obviously you got to wonder what kind of people want to go to a place like this. And well, it was a lot of people that were just displaced, rejected other outsiders, similar people to him. And what's interesting is that Pazuzu took advantage of that. And he knew that all these broken people would be coming to his house and he knew that he could control them through subtle manipulation. 
Another friend of Pazuzu named Nate Anderson explained, quote, he had a twisted sort of charisma. It's the kind of charisma that isn't going to appeal to everyone, but certain minds are going to be drawn in by that. The misfits, the outcasts, people living on the edge, or people who wanted to live on the edge. Well, yeah, because how many how many houses can you go to that let you literally do whatever you want? Like, this place is crazy. There's no limits whatsoever. And this charisma that Nate's talking about made Pazuzu surprisingly popular with women. It's always weird that some women are drawn to the most wild characters, and that was the case for Pazuzu. Young women who were going through rough times and had nowhere else to go were especially vulnerable to him. And inside the Knob Hill house, residents drank around the clock. They did heroin. They would literally just go into the corner and take a shit. They would piss wherever they were. So you got to imagine the smell that came from this house was so fucking putrid. It, it is almost unbearable. I mean, I can almost smell it coming through the computer right now, just thinking about it. Just soaked in urine and shit. And not only that, he had four or five dogs, I think. So you got dogs going around in there eating the poop, human like human feces, like and his fucking mom lives there. As long as it's not in her room, she doesn't fucking care. Yeah, that's just absolutely crazy. And in an interview, actually, one of Pazuzu's female friends who came over often, she said the first time that that front door opened, that she could smell that stench. Like it was the strongest smell she had ever smelled in her whole life. She's just like, holy shit, like literally shit everywhere in this house and dogs barking and just really a chaotic place. And also, like I said earlier, animal sacrifice was common at the house. Pazuzu would not only kill rabbits, but he would also kill birds and drink their blood. Pazuzu loved a spectacle. He would cut himself in front of a crowd of people and then drink his blood. Obviously, this was a spectacle too because everybody's fucked up. Everybody's high. Everybody's drunk. So when he would do something crazy like that, obviously people would be like, whoa, holy shit like it would be a party i mean it would just be like crazy out of control wild fights so yeah it was just this crazy rip roaring fucking place and a lot of his friends would often follow his lead so pazuzu cut his himself open they would do the same they would drink blood too like it wasn't just pazuzu being the only one who was doing those crazy things so just imagine how disgusting this place is you've got human feces you've got blood from animals blood from humans you've got drugs everywhere you've got alcohol you've got so many different substances all going around people are having sex in this environment can you like talk about sanitary holy shit this is probably worse than the dump this is you're probably better off going to the dump (laughs) itself so filthy Like, I can't believe that people just would fucking do this. And I mean, obviously, if you're taking substances, it's a lot easier to be in an environment like this because you're kind of half there. You know, you're not really understanding or knowing what's going on there most of the time. So, yeah, you just kind of deal with it. So his friend Crazy Dave also said that the dishwasher was filled with a bunch of different types of weapons 
And Pazuzu told him he killed homeless people a lot and he would shoot and stab people to death. He even said that he hid a person in his basement and he said, quote, if anyone comes out of the basement, don't let them go. And he would tell that to any of his friends that were there and his friends were like, oh, okay. Well, I think they were just like crazy Pazuzu, like you're just fucking around. Like, I don't think anybody really took him seriously that he could be doing all these things. And that's what's so fucking frightening about this, as we'll find out later on, is that some of this shit becomes reality because there's a lot of debate with Pazuzu that he may have even been a serial killer. And to just make matters worse, Pazuzu had very bizarre beliefs about personal hygiene, clearly. He avoided bathing and brushing his teeth, which he thought would hurt his body's ability to fight infection and disease. I think at one point he didn't bathe for an entire year. So imagine the fucking BO on this guy must have been horrific. Like you would have had to have been fucking high to even be in this dude's presence or fucked up at the very least because this dude probably smelled. So how did everybody not just like puke all the time? Just like throwing up constantly. Exactly. I couldn't even imagine like, when the dog shits sometime, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, like this is horrific. But to imagine fucking the, his mom's house, how disgusting it is. So over the years, Pazuzu covered himself in tattoos and his tattoos were not just ordinary tattoos. He would cover himself specifically with satanic imagery and symbols, including a depiction of a demon, a Nazi symbol, terms like 666, Satan and Lucifer. His friend Crazy Dave even claimed that Pazuzu filed his own teeth down to points while high on meth. So literally he took his teeth from like little squares to fucking little daggers in his mouth to only make himself look more like a demon, which filing your teeth down does not sound fucking fun at all. Even on meth. I can't even imagine. He must've been really fucking high on meth because that shit is so painful just hearing that makes the hair on my skin stand up. And then I immediately think of nails just running down a chalkboard. Oh. Just how ugh, yeah. disturbing that is. Yeah. And I got to say, when you see this guy, he definitely is, is achieving the demon look like he's starting to definitely make himself look demonic and not saying that just because you have tattoos on your face or body. I have tattoos. So many people have face, throat, neck tattoos, like, it's it's a normal thing. You're like post Malone, does he look like a demon? No, no. So it's it's more so the actual tattoos themselves. The fact that it is evil shit and demonic imagery, and you know he's got his teeth filed down. That really makes him look fucking creepy. And while looking like this, Pazuzu often had sex with multiple women. He still got the women looking like a fucking demon. He encouraged nudity. And tried to instigate orgies. He tried to, nobody even knows how many women he slept with. I mean, he was just one after another. And what's interesting is that he referred to a few women, though, as his spiritual wives or his fiancés. And these two women were Amber Birch and Crystal Matlock. Even though he referred to them as his fiancés, they never legally got married. But Pazuzu and Amber were listed as a married couple on Facebook. Ooh. On November 1st, 2009. Now, Amber lived in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is about an hour and a half from Clemens. And Amber had just graduated high school when she started seeing Pazuzu, so very, very young. Her best friend, Katie Wagner Davis, described Amber's transformation. 
She grew distant from her friends and family, and she stopped showering and shaved off her eyebrows. She also filed her teeth into points in order to bite into animals during ritual sacrifices. Amber also told her friend Katie that she and Pazuzu would cut each other and drink each other's blood. Ugh, it's just fucking so disgusting. In late 2009, Amber invited Katie to visit her and meet Pazuzu. And when Katie came to visit, she said that stench smacked her in the face when she walked up to the door of the Knob Hill house. Once inside, she told Pazuzu, dude, your house smells like death. And Pazuzu replied, yeah, that's just the bodies in the basement. What the fuck? If someone ever told me that, I would, I, I honestly, I think I would, and it looked like Pazuzu. I'd probably fucking take him seriously. I'd be like, oh shit, I'm not coming in your fucking house. Like, what the fuck? Pazuzu sought to build an army of loyal followers, so people came from all over, some looking for acceptance and love, and others seeking out the lawless and chaotic environment that he fostered there. And as the number of occupants and regular visitors grew, the conditions in the home continued to deteriorate. Dogs roamed the property and barked uncontrollably when anyone approached the house. Garbage and debris filled the house and yard. Dead animals were left to rot, including one account of a dead cat hanging from his tree. Blood was smeared across the moldy walls and floor. Swarms of flies lived and died in the home. In order to combat the smells of rotten decay, residents would keep windows open and hang air fresheners all over the house. Graffiti was everywhere, much of it containing satanic imagery. Inverted pentagrams were painted on the walls and doors, as well as inverted crosses and pictures of demons hung on the walls. Evil Will Triumph was painted on the solid black front door. Along with that, they had a note on the door that said, No gang members allowed. Anyone that dresses the same, has the same badge, and call themselves the authority of a land they did not create. They only seize through terrorism has no permission to enter this land unless you are a native since this is their land. Since this is the first amendment of your fake laws for we see you are guilty until proven innocent. If you can make laws, so can we, so be it. It's literally on his front door. And I still can't wrap my mind around how his mother allowed him to literally transform her entire house into something I can't even put words to how fucked up this is. A hellhole. Right. It's literally a hellhole. Yeah, that's the most baffling thing is that my guess is she just wasn't there that often. I mean, I couldn't imagine that she was going to work, getting off of work, and then coming home to this. What the fuck? Like, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Weapons and broken glass also littered the home. Black metal music blasted day and night. The neighbors were terrified of Pazuzu in the Knob Hill house. The smells from rotting animal carcasses and feces and human waste were overpowering. The houses were close enough that the neighbors had to know what was going on there. I mean, I can't imagine that they probably smelled a lot of this. I mean, I'm pretty sure they did. And that would suck to live next to somebody like that. Like, and it's not like this neighborhood had an HOA where you can report them and 
you know, they can get kicked out of the neighborhood. Like, no, that's not how this neighborhood worked. This is not a, you know, an HOA neighborhood by any means. So they were allowed to fucking get away with this for years. Can you imagine being one of Pazuzu's neighbors and you just walk over to his house, knock on the door and Pazuzu just answers and you're just looking at him like, seriously, what the fuck? Seriously. I, I would just turn right back around and be like, all right, man, like I'm calling the cops or something. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised people weren't calling the cops on him all the time. As you can imagine, there were rumors of animal sacrifice going around, violence, cannibalism, and bodies buried in the yard. And Pazuzu spread many of these stories himself. He wanted to be feared by everyone. So Crazy Dave recalled once again that one time Pazuzu threatened him with a large knife, telling him, quote, I've done something. You're going to help me dig this hole or I'm going to kill you. Jesus. Sounds like a great friend, huh? But a woman named Bianca Heath, who lived in the house for about a month in 2005, said she had heard Pazuzu talking about dead bodies and cannibalism, bragging about murdering two sex workers and eating their flesh. He even joked about burning their bodies and burying their remains in the yard. But Bianca, like everyone else who heard these stories, assumed he was lying. And that's what was so crazy is that everybody just thought that, oh, he's just making this shit up. There's no way he could be doing all this crazy, crazy shit. But little do they know. Now, a woman named Sylvia LeBeau met Pazuzu in 2009, and she was a preacher's daughter and active in her church, and she wanted nothing to do with Pazuzu and his lifestyle. One night, when dropping someone off at the house, Pazuzu made her come inside and watch very disturbing homemade porn. And in the video, Pazuzu wore a bloody bandana that Sylvia later learned belonged to a man named Joshua Wetzler, whose body is buried in the backyard. In the video, Pazuzu wore a bloody bandana that Silvio later learned belonged to a dead man. Pazuzu went on to tell her that he was the quote-unquote gatekeeper of hell, which honestly isn't far from the truth. Now you got to think, like, how did a guy like this not just end up in jail at a young age? Like, how did he go on doing all this shit for so long? Well, Pazuzu did have numerous run-ins with the law throughout his life. In fact, he was convicted of larceny in 2008, but served no jail time. Instead, he was sentenced to probation and put on parole. In 2010, a 30-year-old man named Joseph Emmerich Chandler was found dead of a gunshot wound on a boat ramp near the Yadkin River, which was a spot where Pazuzu was known to torture and kill animals. Literally, this guy got killed for pretty much being in the wrong place at the wrong time and completely innocent, and was murdered by these guys. And the case was closed when Nicholas Rizzi was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for the crime. And authorities accused Pazuzu of letting Nicholas hide at his house and purposely misleading the investigation. Because of this, Pazuzu was convicted of accessory after the fact for this involvement. But again, he was only sentenced to probation. They literally, this is what blows my mind too, is the criminal justice system totally fucking let this guy go. Like Pazuzu should have been charged more seriously for this crime, for his involvement in it. And yet he literally got a slap on the wrist and got sent back into society. Because of this, Pazuzu was convicted of accessory after the fact for this involvement. But again, he was only sentenced to probation. 
The same day he was arrested, Pazuzu was sent to Dorothea Dix Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina for a full psychiatric evaluation. And it's not standard procedure to send someone for an evaluation that quickly after an arrest. It usually occurs when someone may need emergency mental health treatment. During this evaluation, psychiatrists prescribed Ativan to help control Pazuzu's anxiety, but it didn't help much. He underwent alcohol detoxification and was prescribed medicine for high cholesterol and antibiotics for a burn wound on his arm. The diagnosis of agoraphobia and schizophrenia were affirmed by psychiatrists, reporting that his extreme anxiety made him a, quote, prisoner in his own home. They also noted evidence of a possible personality disorder. Psychiatrists recommended that mental health and substance abuse treatment be a mandatory part of his release plan. Ultimately, though, Pazuzu was deemed fit to stand trial. Both Pazuzu and his girlfriend, Amber, were accused of assaulting his mother on separate occasions. After putting Cynthia's mother in a chokehold and squeezing her until she couldn't breathe, he was convicted. As a result, he was convicted of misdemeanor assault in 2010, but never prosecuted, which was a direct result of his mother not pressing charges, not continuing the prosecution. And then in February of 2010, Stacy Carter, Joshua Wetzler's former partner, reported him missing. She told police she had heard a rumor that Joshua had been murdered and was buried on the Knob Hill House property. On that same day, police received reports that Tommy Welch's body may also be buried on the same property. A search warrant was issued on February 23, 2010 for the backyard of the home, but police couldn't get access to the ground imaging equipment in order to search for bodies. Instead of waiting two weeks for the equipment, police opted to use cadaver dogs to search, and the dogs found nothing, probably because there's tons of fucking dead shit, dead animals that are probably made it difficult for the cadaver dogs. And the contents of the search warrant were sealed on February 26, 2010. On November 8, 2011, Pazuzu's mother, Cynthia, told police that she had witnessed a murder at her home a few years back, back in 2009. She had remembered that she had heard a gunshot, and when she had went to investigate, she saw Pazuzu's girlfriend, Amber Birch, holding a rifle and standing over an unresponsive man lying on the couch. This man was Tommy Welch. The police said they needed more evidence and asked Cynthia if she could search the house. She refused, and they didn't pursue it further. In 2011, Pazuzu pled guilty to misdemeanor assault on another woman, and still, he was only sentenced to probation. That's so crazy. He just keeps getting slaps on the wrist. They're not, it's like they're not taking him seriously. And like a cult leader, Pazuzu thrived off of welcoming people who were weak, vulnerable, and desperate into his inner circle. These people were easier to control and manipulate. And it's believed that Joshua Wetzler and Tommy Welch were among the many people who frequented or maybe even lived at the Knob Hill house. And what's really sad is that Joshua Wetzler was a good guy. He was a father and you know, he lost his job and his life really started going downhill a little bit. And you know, he started dabbling in drugs and we're not even entirely sure how he even ended up at Pazuzu's house, but he did. And unfortunately it ended in his death. Now the timeline of when these murders happened is debatable. But police believe Joshua Wetzler was killed in the summer of 2009 and Tommy Welch was killed in October of 2009. 
Joshua was shot at least seven times with a 22 caliber rifle, three shots in his head, and at least four in his torso, or even possibly five. One version of the story places Pazuzu's mother at the scene of the crime. Cynthia was getting ready for work and saw Pazuzu holding a gun on Joshua, and she just left the room. But before she left the house, she heard Pazuzu say, I'm going to finish him off. Pazuzu then hid Joshua's body in the basement before burying him in the backyard with help from his fiancés, Amber Birch and Crystal Matlock. And again, Amber didn't even live in Clemens, but she traveled back to Clemens from South Carolina in order to help him with the burial of the decomposing body, which I think what happened was is that he threatened them. He was like, I'll put you in the ground too if you don't help me. The father of a woman named Tarina Billings was acquainted with Crystal Matlock. Tarina said that while drinking together one day, Pazuzu bragged about shooting a man six times and putting the body in his basement covered in bleach and cat litter so he wouldn't smell. And according to Sylvia LeBeau, the preacher's daughter, Crystal bragged about her role in the murder to everyone she knew. Tommy Welch was killed by at least one gunshot to the back of his head. Authorities believe Amber Birch used the same 22 caliber rifle that was used to kill Joshua. She shot Tommy while he was sitting on a couch, and Pazuzu helped her bury the body. Matt Flowers, an Iraq war veteran and Pazuzu's former friend, after a long five years, he was the one who finally convinced police that the Knob Hill house property needed to be thoroughly searched. That's what was so crazy about this too, is the police, what the hell were they doing for those five years or whatever it was since he was missing? Or the like, everybody's being like, hey, we think there's bodies in the backyard. We're hearing people say there's bodies in the backyard. They do one little search and then they stop. That's it. Like they didn't even try to really, really search this place or bring that equipment back to allow them to search underground. And yeah, it's like, I think part of it is like the police, even the police were scared of Pazuzu. I think they were completely intimidated by him and scared of him. So they kind of just kept away. And it's really just sad that the police didn't do their job. I mean, they didn't, they should have been looking for Joshua and Tommy way, way earlier. And all the roads would have led them right to Pazuzu's door. I agree because I feel like not only the police were intimidated by Pazuzu, but also his friends were. I mean, he would threaten his friends to get them to do anything. But most importantly, Cynthia, his mom, had to have been really scared of Pazuzu. And I feel like he had like a control or like a possessive relationship over his mom where his mom would literally do anything that he said and would never stand up for herself in in those kind of situations. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think he did get this power over everyone around him and all these people because it's the only thing that makes sense. But what doesn't make sense to me is like, why wouldn't she have left? Why wouldn't his mother have left the house or like told somebody or, you know, it's really interesting that he really did have this hold over everybody, including the police. I mean, it took literally a war veteran to go into the police and be like, hey, this is fucking serious. There's really fucking dead bodies in the backyard. You guys need to investigate. Because after Matt Flowers went in, it seemed like, and, and I think part of it too is that, you know, some of the other people that came to the police were 
low, you know, kind of these outcasts, you know, struggling with, with different things. And so the police obviously have a, you know, a stereotype that they give people and they probably looked at them like, yeah, whatever you're scum, you know, not worried about, we, we got better things to worry about. You guys are all crazy. You're all, you know, high over there. Like just didn't take it seriously until Matt stepped the fuck up and was like, I got to say something. Cause this is fucking, this is really fucking bad. On October 5th, 2014, the Forsyth County Sheriff's office arrived at two seven, four, nine, Knob Hill Drive in Clemens, North Carolina, with a search warrant. The State Bureau of Investigation, the North Carolina State University Forensic Anthropology Unit, and the Medical Examiner's Office from Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center also assisted the officers. And when they went into the backyard, the backyard was just a fucking mess. I mean, there's a shit everywhere. There's graffiti everywhere. There, I mean, it's it's hard to even find like i don't even know how you find anything in that backyard but they noticed that around the fire pit area that the ground was disturbed and what they found under that ground was a shallow grave where they removed the remains of two unidentified bodies and this discovery of these two bodies would mark the end of the reign of terror that pazuzu algarod had had while living in his clemens house of horrors so at this particular time, like we had said, Crystal Matlock had been living in South Carolina. Amber Birch, however, had been living in the house with Pazuzu along with his mother, Cynthia. And after they had found those bodies, 35-year-old Pazuzu Algarod and 24-year-old Amber Birch were arrested and charged with one count of murder and one count of accessory after the fact. And then the next day, Pazuzu's girlfriend, Crystal Matlock, was arrested for her involvement in the killings. The bodies were later identified on October 13th as Joshua Wetzler and Tommy Welch, who had been missing since 2009. After waiting years for answers, Martha Wetzler, Joshua's mother, said in an interview, quote, I'm not even sure how I feel. I'm kind of numb. I want to know why, why he did that, but I'm not so sure I'll get an answer to that. Because you can imagine like how fucking terrible it must have been to find out that you're missing son was just buried in some guy's backyard and the way that the media really spin this and it's important to to bring this up that the media really really once once they figured out that pazuzu was involved in this they blew this up as like satanic killings happened here like there was some basically you know pazuzu wanted to take everything to the next level which i think he did but i don't necessarily think that he killed Joshua Wetzler and Tommy Welch for satanic ritual reasons. But ultimately in order to give himself more power, Pazuzu wanted to move from animal sacrifice to human sacrifice. So in a way, you know, maybe it's true that he killed them as a human sacrifice. I don't know, but that's what the media went with. So they really, really painted him out to be, you know, this crazy satanic individual which he was to some extent, but you know, that he was there doing all this witchcraft and satanic rituals and, and really, you know, painted him as the ultimate enemy of the community. Cause I mean, this is a God fearing community and literally they had a devil living next door. Like this guy, you know, was literally worshiping Satan and killing people and animals. And so, they really sensationalize this as the media always does in order to 
really like blow this thing up. And it makes sense because Pazuzu's image and his appearance definitely portrays like he is a, you know, Satanist or a very demonic individual. And not only that, like all the graffiti in his house and just how everything was just trashed and literally looked like a living graveyard probably definitely contributed to that. But what I don't understand is when Pazuzu was on trial, you know, for those crimes that he had in the past, how did the judge just give him a slap on the wrist when he was literally looking at the same person as the media was and his appearance and how fucked up he looked? And the judge was just like, oh, no, you you look like a, a good person that could use a second or a third chance here. Here's some probation for you. Like, yeah, I just don't understand that at all. No. And that's a major failing in this case is that the justice system did not do their job. And not only that, they let a severely mentally ill individual. You got to remember, he's got schizophrenia. Okay. So it's very, it's very possible that he really believed that he was a demon and that there was probably, you know, Satan was, you know, right looking over his shoulder i mean right. or i mean it's very possible that you know all these things were way 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 worse in his world than what we even perceived so the fact that the the justice system did not fall through and you know mandate that he goes to even a psychiatric facility a psych ward a hospital whatever you want to call an asylum and at least put him there for a while and let him be monitored and try to like See if they can help him at all. They just fucking gave him probation and throw him back out on the street where he just went right back to doing crazy shit is, yeah, it, it's the biggest mystery of this whole thing. And I right. think everybody involved with this, all the victims and, and you know, people that were affected by this, this person are all wondering what happened. Like the system completely let them down because yeah, he should have never even gotten out of, uh, of jail or let alone a, a treatment facility, but he did. It's like they didn't care. It's it's so fucked up. But on March 9th, 2017, after over two years of delays, Amber pled guilty to second-degree murder for Tommy's death, accessory after the fact for Joshua's death, and armed robbery. She was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years and eight months with a maximum of 39 years and two months. On June 5th, 2017, Crystal pled guilty to conspiracy to accessory after the fact to first degree murder for her role in Joshua's death. She was sentenced to a minimum of three years and two months with a maximum of four years and 10 months, not nearly enough. In a statement in court, Crystal apologized to the family saying she could have come forward, but was too scared. Amanda Martin is a first amendment attorney who spoke at the end of the proceedings. She requested the release of the sealed search warrants related to the case on behalf of the Winston Salem journal. Warrants are sealed to protect the integrity of an investigation or to ensure the accused receive a fair trial. Because these circumstances no longer applied, the judge granted her request. Once these warrants were released, it became painfully clear how many times mental health services or law enforcement could have intervened and prevented these murders. Time and time again, Pazuzu slipped through the cracks of the mental health and criminal justice systems. Deep budget cuts at the federal and state levels force correctional officers to handle people with severe mental health problems with no resources or assistance, and the results of these broken systems can be devastating. Now, the discovery of human remains at the Knob Hill house was only the beginning. After removing the bodies of Joshua Wetzler and Tommy Welch 
investigators and firefighters in hazmat suits continued to search the premises. Authorities drained the swimming pool and the public works department arrived on the scene with a front end loader to help clear away the massive pile of debris. The conditions of the house were disgusting and dangerous and it took countless hours for crews to complete the search and collect evidence. They had to sift through rotting carcasses, animal feces, human waste, mold, and endless garbage piles. Authorities actually released a nine and a half minute video that revealed the conditions of the house and property to the world. If you want to see what this Clemens House of Horrors looked like on the inside, then go over to YouTube and check out our YouTube video because we'll have all the footage there. But it's literally this footage of Pazuzu's house that gave it its infamous nickname, the Clemens House of Horrors. The murders and the victims took a back seat to the scandalous stories of a devil-worshipping cult leader, and through the sensationalized version of the story, the realities were lost. Many believe the Clemens House of Horrors existed because desperate people had no place to go. They were the working poor who had been thrown away by society. They were physically and sexually abused young women and girls. They were people who were struggling with substance abuse, alcoholics, whose addictions were being enabled and encouraged. Despite the implications of devil worship and Satanism, the Satanic Temple has spoken out against Pazuzu and the lack of mental health resources that could have saved him. And as we talked about in the Anton LaVey episode, modern Satanists are really less of a religious group and more of a political activist. They really aren't what Pazuzu was at all. I mean, Pazuzu was a very just skewed version of what Satanism is really all about, a very extremist point of view. And most Satanists don't even believe in Satan himself. They don't believe that the devil actually exists. It's more of a metaphor and not an actual evil spirit or presence. So Pazuzu was really a bad example of what a Satanist is. But obviously, as you can probably imagine, the Knob Hill House was condemned by the city. And six months later, in April 2015, it was destroyed. For years, neighbors had feared the house, and on this day it was demolished. Everybody got their lawn chairs out, got their picnics out, and washed as the city tore the house down. It took less than two hours to destroy the house, and after it was gone, a resident, Debbie Tate, said, I feel like the neighborhood will have peace now because the evil is not here anymore. That's all he was, pure evil. But as I always like to do with any of these horrific crimes, I always like to remember the victims. So let's talk a little bit about Joshua Wetzler and Tommy Welch, who were the men who lost their lives in this tragic story. Tommy Welch shared an apartment with his mom in Clemens, North Carolina, and his brother Rusty lived nearby. On October 3rd, 2009, Tommy was at his apartment fixing a stereo. He planned to have pizza that night with Rusty, Rusty's wife and kids, and their mother. He left his home to walk to Rusty's apartment, but never made it. When Rusty and a few others went to check on Tommy, They found the fixed stereo with the Michael Jackson album inside, one of Tommy's favorites. For 24 hours, Rusty panicked, knowing that something was wrong. It wasn't like his brother to take off without telling anyone. The family reported Tommy missing the following day. For years, Rusty searched for his brother, hoping he would show up one day and explain where he had been. Tommy grew up in Arkansas with his two younger brothers, and he was good at fixing things and enjoyed working on cars. And Rusty described his brother as a devoted uncle who loved spending time with his niece and nephew. Tommy just sounded like an overall good guy and, you know, no reason for him to have ended up with Pazuzu and murdered. It's just 
extremely sad that that's how it ended up for him. Joshua Wetzler was reported missing by his former partner, Stacy Carter, six months after she had last seen him in July of 2009. Stacy and Joshua had a son together named Jared in 2004. They broke up a year later but remained on good terms. She expected him to contact her other family members over the holidays, and when he didn't, she knew something was wrong. Joshua loved to sing and attend music festivals. His favorite bands were The Grateful Dead and Widespread Panic. Stacy described him as a peace-loving hippie who was generous and kind. The couple hoped to own a horse farm for therapeutic riding someday. Joshua attended horseshoeing school but believed the practice was inhumane. Instead, he became a master hoof trimmer. In February of 2009, Joshua was convicted of buying psychedelic mushrooms through the mail, a drug felony that derailed his life. That's one of the points I wanted to make is that Joshua got a felony for getting some psychedelic mushrooms delivered to him through the mail, yet Pazuzu is literally attempting to kill his mother and gets probation. How fucking fucked is our criminal justice system? Right. doesn't make any sense. What the hell? A peace-loving hippie who wants to take some mushrooms is, is getting harsher penalties and felonies when Pazuzu's literally destroying people and he's getting a slap on the wrist makes no sense whatsoever. And, and that's the biggest fucking issue with their criminal justice system is priorities. Their priorities are so fucked. The war on drugs. All right. Don't even get me started, but the war on drugs is the biggest bunch of bullshit to ever happen. I agree. And after you get a drug felony like this, it becomes extremely hard to get a job. And he was unable to work in his trade, which left him in financial trouble. It was at this point that he lost custody of his son so he could only visit him with supervision. Joshua likely ended up at Pazuzu's house to make money selling weed. Stacy knew that Joshua loved his son and always wanted to be a good father. The last time she saw him, Joshua told Stacy he was working with camels at the Renaissance Fair. She knew things were tough for him, but he seemed hopeful. Since Joshua's death, Stacy has fulfilled the couple's dream. She started Heart-Centered Horsemanship, a business that provides horse training and therapy and healing connections and community partnership that offers free therapeutic services. It's just so fucking terrible. These two poor, poor guys lost their lives at the hands of this fucking monster. So in May of 2015, Pazuzu Algarad is in prison awaiting trial when he's transferred for the second time on a safekeeping order. This order is issued for inmates at risk because of mental health disorders, medical conditions, or other inmates. He was then moved to Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. And in the early morning hours of October 28, 2015, just days before he was scheduled to appear in court, Pazuzu allegedly used a sharp object to inflict a fatal wound. He sliced deep into his left arm, hitting a major blood vessel. And many people speculate that you know, if he really did have these filed down teeth that he actually bit into his own arm in order to try and kill himself. Pazuzu lay bleeding in a cell until 3 a.m. when guards found him unresponsive during a routine inmate check and they tried to resuscitate him, but he was pronounced dead at 4.20 a.m. His autopsy listed his cause of death as severe blood loss caused by apparent suicide. The police held a quick press conference to announce Pazuzu's death and the details of that night in the safekeeping order have been kept from the public. There are no details about the weapon used or if a weapon was recovered, and it's unclear if Pazuzu had attempted suicide before 
and if he had been on suicide watch because that's that's the word on the street is that he did attempt to kill himself prior which was why the safekeeping order was issued but then again as we know if you've been following the jeffrey epstein saga that you know if you are at risk for hurting yourself then you are on suicide watch you should never be allowed to be you know unresponsive in yourself for long periods of time or especially if you're bleeding out somebody should be watching you so it's very suspicious as to how he died by apparent suicide because he was supposed to have been watched and what did he kill himself with we don't know but apparently some items that were recovered from a cell included an electric razor and a bottle filled with an unidentified red liquid again an electric razor though i don't believe would have edges on it sharp enough to cut yourself deep enough to hit those arteries so i don't know if that would be the the tool that he used to commit suicide or not or i don't know what this bottle filled with an unidentified red liquid i assume is his own blood so maybe it was officials denied rumors that pazuzu had previously used his pointed teeth to inflict wounds on his body however corrections officers and fellow inmates claim this is true his autopsy, though, listed damaged, not pointed teeth, and made no mention of a split tongue, despite numerous reports that he had one. The unknown details leave his death shrouded in mystery, with some wondering if he really died by suicide, and if so, why he was left alone long enough to bleed out. Apparently, Pazuzu also allegedly had a son that he had never had contact with, and Cynthia just disappeared. Like her whereabouts are unknown. She just literally skipped town. Like after all this happened, nobody knows where she went and she didn't, she hasn't said anything about all this. It's very, very weird that she's so like detached from all this. Martha Wetzler, the mother of murder victim, Joshua Wetzler said of Pazuzu's suicide quote, that he took the coward's way out. That only proves to me that he knew what he'd done and that he didn't want to be responsible for his action. Which I kind of have to agree with her because I think at, at the root, Pazuzu is a coward and, you know, he's not as tough and, and badass as he liked to make himself be. And I think he knew that somebody like him is going to have a very rough time in prison. And even if he is, you know, separated from other inmates, there's always a chance that, you know, he could be killed in prison. I mean, we saw what happened with Jeffrey Dahmer. So, I'm sure that was running through his head that, you know, somebody that's got satanic imagery all over them is definitely not going to have, have it easy in prison. And it just shows that he had like zero remorse for everything that he did and what he was involved in. Because to me, it seems like he felt like everything he did was to his own beliefs and was his right way of living. Because if he did feel bad by any means about anything that he's done, I think he would have at least take some responsibility being in prison and lived out the rest of his life and tried to give back good to the world while he was there. But the fact that he just immediately, you know, killed himself. Yeah. Shows that he was a coward. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, when you look at this whole story as a whole, you really start to realize like, he he you know it wasn't so much about satanism or you know being you know this this you know evil individual but it was more about 
having this power over other people. And I think like any cult leader, you know, with Jim Jones, with Charles Manson, with so many of these people that, you know, once you figure out a way to gain power over people that, you know, that power just consumes you. And in his case, it was, you know, all the drugs that he was doing and, you know, all of the, you know, shit he, he did just played into his ability to manipulate all of these broken people that, you know, he brought into his home. And, you know, I think the media really blew this up as a, you know, the satanic person and everything involved was due to his beliefs in Satanism and, and whatnot in the occult. But to me, I really see just a really, really broken, sick individual who struggled with serious mental illness his entire life and pretty much went untreated. And I mean, you know, that type of mental illness along with serious substances like heroin and meth, like that's going to really, really fuck you up. And just the lack of help he got too. like, I'm not trying to sympathize for him at all, but I mean, his mother, I'm just like, what the, I, everybody's like, what the fuck was Cynthia? Like, right. Why didn't she intervene? She literally was at the house when he murdered those two men, Joshua and Tommy. He was literally, she was literally there. She walked in right before she was going to shoot Joshua. And instead she turned the other way and left. What's that? Like, how do you even fucking wrap your head around that? Right. And I feel like she just got up and left after everything that happened was because I'm sure that she had so much guilt deep down. She not only allowed him to stay in her house and do whatever the fuck he wanted to, but also, you know, he killed people. And I feel like she had an idea that was going on as well. Cause like, how could she not? I mean, the house alone smelled like yeah. shit death. and death, like death and, you know, the backyard and, she should have came forward. She should have turned her son in. And the fact that she never did. And she sat by while all this fucked up shit happened in her fucking house. Honestly, I'm surprised that she's not fucking in prison, that she's not being sued by these victims families. And that's what's so fucked up about it is like, she has no, had, had no accountability. And like she was interviewed in the series that by the way, you should definitely check out if you want more information about Pazuzu. It's a five-part series on Vice, and it's actually on YouTube. We'll put the link for you called The Devil You Know. And it's great because it really explores all these different things and how really the sociopolitical structures that are in place to deal with these types of people and situations completely failed. They completely failed these victims. They completely failed Pazuzu. And at the end of the day, you know, obviously Pazuzu is the one to blame first and foremost, but the fucking law enforcement needs to be blamed for it. Like what the fuck they didn't, how did they not investigate this more seriously until literally somebody had to come in and be like, Hey dude, there's definitely bodies in the backyard. You got to believe me. You know, all these tips came in. How did the neighbors not fucking hear gunshots going off? Like Maybe I guess they just got used to all the craziness, but it just there's so many things that fucking went wrong that could have been prevented. And honestly, these deaths could have been prevented if if Pazuzu had actually been dealt with for the serious issues and mental illnesses that he had. 
years ago and it never happened. And this is, this is what happens when mental illness goes untreated and you know, nobody cares. Absolute destruction. And I mean, I don't know. It's, it's really tough because in the series, actually they were able to get an interview with Cynthia and Cynthia is just like still in total denial. And honestly, I think she's probably struggling with some mental illness as well because they're like, what about your son? Are you going to take accountability for anything? And she just literally is like, eh, you know, he, he was a good boy. She's like, I only want to remember him for John Lawson, you know, the little boy that I had at one point, but she doesn't want to take responsibility or accountability for all these horrific things that he did. And she's like, he wasn't an evil guy. Well, he certainly lived that way. So it, it's it's really tough. It's really hard to wrap your head around and really, you know, get a grip on this because, you know, at at the same time, like some people might feel a little bit bad for Pazuzu because of uh, the failings of the system and for all these other people that ended up there. But at the end of the day, it's like, it just shows you how how real mental illness is and how serious we got to take it and how fucked up our society is and our government is that they don't take it seriously and and so many fucking horrific things happen as a result of people's mental illness so it's a lesson i think it's a lesson to everybody that you got to take mental illness seriously and deal with it and if you have loved ones that have it like you got to help them you got to really step up and and be there for them and and do everything you can because when you don't and you turn the other way or ignore it really bad things can happen but with that being said that is where our story ends today definitely let us know what you guys think of pazuzu check out the devil you know very interesting but that is it for us thanks again for joining us for another episode of the lights out podcast we will be back next week with an alien abduction story so get ready for that but until next time lights out everybody everybody